send a special thanks to Dwight Geiger, who preached for us last week when I was on holidays and kept the Luke series going. Uh, today we are at the end of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 41. Well, every couple who has kids wants to be a good parent. And sometimes we come across inspirational quotes like this from, from American World War II hero General Douglas MacArthur. He said, By profession I am a soldier, and take pride in that fact. But I am prouder, infinitely prouder, to be a father. A soldier destroys in order to build. A father only builds, never destroys. The one has the potential of death. The other embodies creation of life. And while the hordes of death are mighty, the battalions of life are mightier still. It is my hope that my son, when I am gone, will remember me, not from my battles, but in our home, repeating with our simple daily prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven. Occasionally, as parents, we reach those kind of heights. But there are a lot of days that look a little bit more like this picture. I love that. They fully drop her, completely drop her. We're good parents, I swear. Now, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke today, we get a fascinating glimpse at the end of Luke chapter 2 into Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph as parents. And this account in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 12 years old. He's a preteen. And it exhibits the challenges of being parents, even if your son is Jesus, the Son of God. All right, so we're going to dive in. You can start the, the app on your smartphone, fall on the screen, or read in your print Bible. Luke 2, 41 to 48. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. And asking them questions. Okay, we're going to stop there. Um, no, there it is. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, there is a lot going on in this story, and as I read it and prepared this week, a million questions jumped into my mind. Beginning back in verse 41, when it tells us that every single year, Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the family would travel to Jerusalem. Scholar Daryl Bach says that in the Old Testament law, in the first half of the Bible, it commanded Jewish men to attend three festivals a year. The Passover feast, the Pentecost celebration, and tabernacles. But as history went on, and in the first century in Jesus' day, 
there were a lot of Jewish people scattered over a wide area of the Roman Empire. Scholars think that there were about 3 million Jewish people living in what we consider today the country of Israel, and about 6 million spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so the custom of the first century Jewish people was that the faithful people who lived some distance away from Jerusalem were only expected to make one trip every year, and that was to one of those three festivals. They could choose. Most of them chose the Passover feast. Now, Joseph was required to go as a Jewish man, but Mary wasn't. So for her to undertake the journey with her children was a sign of her great spiritual faithfulness. Thirteen years of age was considered the defining moment for a Jewish boy, where he transitioned from a a boy into a young teenager into on his way to becoming a man. Now the years leading up to that 13 years of age transition, the years leading up to it involved a lot of instruction. He would spend a lot of time learning. He would memorize passages from the first half of the Bible. Now, in our day, the celebration of bar mitzvah is common for Jewish boys who are turning 13. It wasn't celebrated in exactly the same way in the first century, but the whole purpose was the same. It was that transition. And the idea that a young boy would study and get ready for that big moment was true then and it's true today. When I traveled to Israel in 2012 with a bunch of other pastors, we, were, we had gone to see the Wailing Wall where the Jewish people go to pray. There's a section for men and a section for women, and you have to wear a cool little Jewish uh, kippah hat. I discovered that there's stylized Jewish kippah hats. Did you know that? I kind of thought they were all plain. There's some with NHL logos. It's really cool. Yeah, there you go. Who knew? Anyways, as we were at the Wailing Wall, we were getting ready, and we were kind of standing there as a group looking at it, and some of us were going to go up and and pray at the wall. There was a young boy, and he was on his dad's shoulders, just kind of like this picture, and he was celebrating his bar mitzvah. And as we stood around and just quietly listened, they were dancing and singing and celebrating, and then it came to this moment, and they said, you know, they all kind of clapped, And then they went silent, and the boy recited two entire chapters from the book of Deuteronomy. Pretty impressive. And it struck me as we were watching that, and the Jewish people have been doing this for thousands of years. These young boys would memorize vast portions of Scripture and recite them back flawlessly on their big day. And as I did that, as I was watching that, I thought, you know what? That's become an even more important practice in our world today, where people don't bother memorizing everything, because you can just look it up on Google. But they're using their brains in a different way. Anyways, by the point, the point is that by 12, Jesus would have vigorously been learning and taught to memorize and understand lots of biblical passages and stories. Now, our vision statement here at Ocean View is to love God, love others, and serve the world. And when we say love God, we don't just mean, we aren't just intending adults. We're also intending kids. And it's the sincere commitment of all of our Ocean Kids Sunday School teachers and helpers to model and inspire and teach our kids to love God. Now, some of you don't make it over to our Ocean Kids Sunday School wing there. You don't have kids or grandkids in that age group. 
And if you think that the point of our Ocean Kids Sunday School is just to babysit kids while we adults in here are learning, then you are sorely mistaken. And if we ever catch you saying that, we're going to beat you with wet spaghetti. I'm just kidding. Some of you look a little terrified. The Passover celebration was one week long, and the phrase, after the festival was over, indicates that Jesus and his family stayed for the entire week. Now, lots of you go camping in the summertime, and often you'll go with a bunch of other families or your relatives, and wherever you camp, you're kind of usually by a lake or a beach or something, and your kids will be running there multiple times a day. And oftentimes they'll go with their friends or their cousins. You have a general kind of idea where your kids are. But at any given moment, you don't know exactly where they are. But you're pretty confident they're safe because they are with their relatives. That appears to be exactly the case with what happened to Mary and Joseph. They are there in Jerusalem for the week of Passover All their relatives are there. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, would have been hanging out with his cousins and different people. And it comes time to pack up. And as a big caravan, they leave the city, go down the roads, and begin the journey back to their home in Nazareth. And Mary and Joseph would have probably quite usually uh, assumed Jesus is with some of the other relatives as we travel along. Now, when it came to the evening meal and the caravan stopped and everyone kind of set up camp, that's when everyone would go back to their family groupings. And it's at that point that Mary and Joseph realize, wait a second, where's Jesus? And they begin to panic. They look around. They go ask everybody, where have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him? No. And then they have this sickening feeling, "Uh uh-oh, we think he's still back in Jerusalem. Now, all parents get panicky when they can't find their kids, and Mary and Joseph are no exception. In fact, they have double the panic, double the stress. I mean, when you lose your kids, it feels like the world's ending. What if you lost the Son of God? How are you going to explain and justify that one? Talk about panic. When I was five years old, my parents took me along to go shopping at Sears department stores, uh, which sadly enough is now closing its doors. Sears is closing. So there I was, five years old. I think we have a picture of me, Caleb, when I was five. There we are. (laughs) Look at those curls, eh? Come on, it was 1977. I asked my mom, I was like, did you bother cutting my hair? And she's like, no, it was so cute, I couldn't cut it. Anyways. So at some point, as we're going around the department store, I get bored and I decide that it would be super fun to hide in the middle of the uh, circle rack of ladies' coats and dresses. And so I actually called my mom this week to kind of double-check the details. She said I was lost for about seven minutes, but it felt like an eternity. They got the Sears employees to help try and find me. My dad figured I'd been abducted for sure. One of the Sears employees heard this giggling coming from this rack, pushed the coats and dresses aside, and there I am with a huge smile. And I'm just thinking we're playing hide-and-go-seek, and they're all panicking. So that kind of stress that parents go through when your kids are lost, ramp that up a hundred times for Mary and Joseph. They have lost God's son not for seven minutes, but for three days. 
so many questions pop into our minds right away. Where did he sleep? Where did he eat? Now, as we read, they found him in the temple courts, talking to the, the religious teachers and the priests and the leaders. Now, presumably, the priests and the teachers actually probably fed him over those three days, maybe gave him a little corner of the temple grounds to sleep in, probably gave him a blanket or something. For a 12-year-old Jewish boy in the middle of the city, that was actually probably one of the safest places he could be. Now, our English translation comes across a little bit flat and emotionless. But when I went back and read the original Greek this week, I found out that the words actually convey some extremely strong emotions. So we're going to show you Luke 2.48 in the DIV, the Darren International Version. There it is. And when his parents saw, they were overwhelmed with emotion. They, and the words have the sense they were astounded, even dumbfounded. And his mother said to him, my beloved son, why? Why have you done this to us? Your father and I, and the Greek words here indicated, experienced extreme mental and spiritual distress. We have been desperately looking for you. You can sense the anxiety in Mary and Joseph. Now, people who don't regularly read the Bible say stuff like, well, the Bible's just so old-fashioned. It's hard to understand. I can't really be bothered to read it. It doesn't seem relevant to my life. It's actually the opposite. This is God's Word, and every story and every teaching is included so that we can fully relate and fully understand what God is telling us. And they, God constantly, from cover to cover, He uses real people with real problems and how God preserved, helped, and sustained them even in the midst of hard things. And I thought, isn't that interesting that there's a story in the Bible about parents losing their kids, something we can all relate to. Well, verse 46 and 47 pick up the action. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. Now, I have a 12-year-old. Her name is Callista. And I'm completely biased, but I think she's pretty fantastic. She's a smart kid who does well in her schoolwork. She does really well at violin and ballet, tap, and jazz dance classes. Now, as awesome and smart, smart as I know she is, she is nowhere near this level of wisdom and insight that Jesus has as a 12-year-old. I mean, this would be equivalent to me taking Calista to a pastor's conference, and I go off to one of the lectures, and I come back, and there she is sitting in the coffee shop with four theology professors, and they are just dumbfounded. Their, their mouths are open at how brilliant this 12-year-old is. That's what Jesus was doing. Now, it goes without saying that Jesus is unique and special. At the same time, Philippians chapter 2 in the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus set aside the use of some of his attributes. When we think of the attributes of God, one of them that easily comes to mind is that God knows everything all the time. And Philippians 2 says when Jesus entered our world and he, he took on humanity, 
he set aside that ability. He set aside a bunch of abilities, like the ability to be everywhere at once. And so Jesus has set that aside. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because I believe that Jesus wants to be our model, our guide, and our ultimate example. Now, if Jesus is the most over-the-top, out-of-this-world, genius 12-year-old, I don't think we could relate to him. But verse 52 makes it pretty plain. At the end of this account, it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. If he knew absolutely everything there was to know at 12 years of age, there'd be no room to grow and learn. So how and why is Jesus still, he may not be an over-the-top genius, but he still exhibits incredible wisdom and insight? How is that possible at 12 years old? Well, I think we have a couple things in play here. Number one, Jesus is sinless. He never sinned throughout his entire life. His mind, his thinking is absolutely, perfectly clear. Now, if you think about how sin clouds all of our judgment, all of our thinking, we're so selfish, we're so, so self-focused, we think of, of our own needs above others, sin clouds all of our thinking. If that was taken away, that would be an amazing experience. Our thinking would be so clear. Second, Jesus has an incredibly close day-by-day, hour-by-hour relationship with God the Father. The Holy Spirit is, God is guiding, fulfilling, and empowering Jesus every step of the way. That Greek word for it where it says Jesus had incredible insight and understanding. Our friend Daryl Bach comments, he says, Jesus is not portrayed as God's wisdom, as he will be later, but he is seen as endowed with wisdom. Thus, this verse illustrates Jesus' growth in wisdom. There was actually a Jewish document from the time that said, those who have wisdom are regarded with respect, taking their seat among the great, even if they are poor. And if you think about Jesus, he came from an extremely poor family. Way up in Nazareth, people thought nothing good comes from that little town. And here is Jesus sitting with the greatest teachers of Israel's day. That brings me to my first major question and point. We say that Jesus is our model and guide. We acknowledge that he grew in wisdom. So at 12 years of age, we can all agree he didn't know everything, but he was growing. Jesus is a relatable 12-year-old at this point. Look at the level of wisdom and insight that he achieved at mere 12 years of age. Now think, stop and think for a second of all the kids in your life. Maybe your own children, maybe your grandkids, maybe your nieces, nephews. Maybe some of you work with children. Now you're picturing all those kids in your mind. And here's my question to you. How much do you honestly think or expect them to be, lear- to be able to learn about spiritual truth. If we're completely honest with ourselves, do we sell them short? In our day-to-day lives, do we challenge them to think deeply? A family around the dinner table, do our discussions push them to try to understand what Jesus would do and how he would handle life? Or do we simply have the attitude, oh, you know what, they're kids, they'll learn it, 
when they're older. You know what? In our media-saturated world in 2018, it isn't a neutral blank slate. If we don't teach our kids and challenge them to grow in their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, then the TV, internet, pop stars are going to teach them. Over in Vancouver is uh, Village Church, fastest growing church in all of Canada. And the uh, pastor's name is Mark Clark, and he has a hilarious little story he told. He says uh, he was leaning over his fence one day, talking with his neighbor at his house in Surrey. And his neighbor makes it very plain that he is not uh, interested in Christian things. But he always wants to talk with Mark, and he always wants to kind of challenge him. And one day his, his neighbor sees Mark's three daughters running around the yard and having fun. And he says, well, Mark, he goes, as a Christian pastor, you're just brainwashing your three daughters. They believe what they believe just because you forced it down their throats. And this is Mark's response. I think it's a classic. He looks at him. He kind of pauses. He looks him right in the eye and he goes, you bet I'm brainwashing my kids. Because if I don't, Beyonce will. Now, brainwashing is a little bit maybe manipulative of a term, but his point is a good one. Our kids will learn from pop culture, so let's not underestimate and sell kids short. They can learn and grow in wisdom just like 12-year-old Jesus. As parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, families, friends, let's take this responsibility seriously and challenge them to think a little deeper about who Jesus is and what he is doing in our world. All right, my second point is entitled The Preteen Son of God. So we come to the part that I've always had some questions about. And Jesus makes this really interesting reply to his parents when they say, Son, how could you do this to us? We've been stressed out for three days trying to find you. And he kind of goes, Why were you looking for me? He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And I've always kind of wondered about that reply. It almost seems his reply is on the edge of a little bit backtalkish, a little bit snarky. And so I looked it up this week, and scholar Jay Noland in the Word Biblical Commentary was really helpful. He says, Jesus' reply was not so much a reproach about having the right priorities as it was a declaration of mission. You see, Jesus ultimately isn't talking back to his parents. He's telling them the urgency of what he came to do. Jesus has a strong sense of identity with God the Father and is committed to the mission that he has been given. This is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is old enough to speak. And he speaks to us as the readers for the first time. And Jesus shows us by his discussions with those religious teachers, with the priests in the temple courts, that he is in fact for his entire life called to instruct us as human beings because he has a close personal relationship to the Father. And has that mission to carry out. The implication for us as readers is clear. Even at 12 years old, Jesus is foreshadowing, giving us a hint. He's saying this, God is saying, this is my son, listen to him. 
And even as his parents, Mary and Joseph, they would have had to come to grapple with this sense of who is our son? What has he come to do? This incredible mission that he's been giving. Now, if we think about our lives for a second, and if we were on a reality TV show and there was a camera following us around 12 hours a day, what would the cameras catch us doing? Would the camera ever catch us sitting down, cracking open our Bible and reading it at some point in the week? Would the cameras catch us praying at some point in the week? Would the cameras catch us serving our friends and neighbors in Jesus' name? I love how Jesus says, of course I'm in my Father's house. Of course I'm here, learning and studying and growing. Wouldn't it be great if you were on a reality TV show that the camera continually caught you doing those things? Essentially, you're saying, of course I want to grow deeper in my understanding and I want to know Jesus better. So that brings us to our final takeaway question. Are we as adults as focused and passionate about learning about God as a 12-year-old? Read a little story this week, and it was about two guys. They were sitting in a pub watching the 11 o'clock news. And a report comes on about a man threatening to jump from the 20th floor of a downtown building. One friend turns to the other and says, I'll bet you 10 bucks the guy doesn't jump. And the guy looks at him and goes, yeah, I'll take that bet. A few minutes later, the man on the ledge jumps. And the guy says, well, I guess I lost the bet. That's really sad. The guy died. That's really tragic. And he hands him the $10 bill. $10 bill. And the other guy says, he says, look, I, I can't take your money. He says, I actually watched the 6 o'clock news. I already knew he jumped. <laughs> and the other guy says, oh, I watched that too. I didn't think he'd do it again. <laughs> All right. It's not the best joke ever, but... That's occasionally how I feel about my own spiritual growth and learning. I make the same dumb mistake over and over. Kind of makes me want to scream sometimes. Darren, when are you going to get it? And as a 12-year-old preteen, Jesus models for us the kind of passionate learning about God and his ways in our world that all of us should have. Luke 2, 46 and 47, one more time. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So what are some practical ways you and I can begin to, to take our relationship, our, our passion to learn and grow in our faith? What are some practical steps we can take? Well, we're going to be continuing this series through the Gospel of Luke right up until Easter. And on our website, we've got each week the sermons listed and the passage. And I would make a simple challenge to all of us that we take a second look on that website, or if you get the weekly uh, MailChimp email, it tells you in there as well. It tells you what we're going to be listening to on Sunday. My challenge is read it ahead of time. Read it over. Think about it. Grab a cup of coffee, maybe a piece of chocolate. Sit down, read that passage ahead of time. Maybe make some questions, some notes. And you will find that if you do that throughout the week, by the time you get to Sunday, 
the sermon is going to mean so much more. We're going to be launching some new small groups this winter. Think about signing up for one of those, allowing your your understanding and relationship with Christ to go deeper. Parents of teenagers, we have an incredible youth ministry. I encourage you to make it a priority. Get your kids there. Give them a chance to learn and grow. Grandparents whose maybe your grandkids don't attend, or your kids don't attend, but your grandkids would love to come. How can you get your grandkids here? You know, Jesus modeled it for us as a 12-year-old. His learn, his passion to learn and grow was incredible. I'm sure we as adults can do just as well. Amen? I'm going to invite our pastoral prayer up at this time.